I realize none of you have probably ever seen that cartoon. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Kind of wanted to cross it off my sermon reference bucket list, but I have a point. Let's get dangerous. This is a catchphrase from this old cartoon called Darkwing Duck, aired from 1991 to 1992. Of course, my first memories of it were watching it on the Disney Channel thanks to this old-fashioned thing they used to do called reruns. The show centered around this well-mannered duck that lived in the suburbs named Drake Mallard, but by evening he would don his cloak and cape and become the masked vigilante known as Darkwing Duck. I don't know why this silly little cartoon has stuck with me over the years. Maybe I was just the right age to find his clumsy attempts to be a superhero amusing, or maybe I'm just a sucker for anything resembling my favorite superhero, Gotham's caped crusader, Batman, even if it was a watered-down parody. Or maybe I'm just, this is what you old people call nostalgia. But whatever the case, at some point in most of the episodes, whenever Darkwing was about to embark on a tough case, or whenever he was about to leap into action to go against one of his many rogues gallery, or whenever Darkwing was up against incredible odds, he'd often turn to the camera and he'd utter his iconic catchphrase, Let's get dangerous. This morning, I feel we're about to embark on something <laughs> dangerous. Because <laughs> you see, I, I want to tackle something a little difficult this morning. It involves a handful of tricky passages of scripture that are steeped in centuries of controversy, speculation, a lot of differing interpretations, and in my humble opinion, a lot of unhelpful applications. And so I normally would steer clear of this entirely. <laughs> I would avoid it with a 10-foot pole. But when I picked John's letters to survey, I knew that we would stumble across these verses. And truth to be honest with you, I was hoping to just skip over them and you guys would never notice. But I had a hunch that Randy was going to say something to me afterwards and say, Pastor, I think you've lost some passages of Scripture in John's letters. So I don't think avoiding the complicated, difficult text of scriptures is what we're called to do. So this morning, let's get dangerous, shall we? Let's get dangerous as we courageously and graciously explore and listen to what I think the Lord wants us to say to John's words this morning. Are you up for it? Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, thank you. This is the last hour, John says, and right out of the gate we have our first hurdle. I told you this passage is complicated, and in the first few words we already have a complicated meaning. What does John mean by the last hour? Did he think that Jesus' second coming was imminent, that the end of time was right around the corner, that judgment day could be any day now, what scholars call a fully realized eschatology? Or maybe John means, picking up our conversation from a couple weeks ago, that since Jesus' first coming inaugurated, remember, the age to come, and that the future is now breaking into the present age, it would just not be long too long before God would just make all things new and this present age 
would cease. And this is why maybe that John is saying the hour is late because now we're on the downward trajectory of history and we're continuing towards the end because we can see the future on the horizon, that God is on the move. And so that's why the end is nigh. And so this whole time period in between Jesus' first and second advent is the last days. It's not something in the future we're living in the last days now. And so John and his people and us we're now on the histories winding down. Jesus' initial arrival, initial arrival initiated the end of days, and so it's not too long. Unfortunately, it's just lasted a lot longer than people expected. But whatever the case, John says it's the last hour, and because of this, we know that it's the last hour because the Antichrist is coming. And even now, many antichrists have come. John will later on say in the same letter, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into this world. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. In his follow-up letter, John will write, Many deceivers have come or gone out into the world, and such a person is a deceiver and an antichrist. Congratulations, you have just read every single Bible verse that contains the word antichrist. You should be very proud of yourselves. I think a lot of us were led to believe that this word is far more prevalent in Scripture than it really is. At least that's what I was led to believe. But it never appears on the lips of Jesus. Paul never uses his word, and it's actually never used in the book of Revelation. This term, Antichrist, is only mentioned by John in his letters, making it far more unique and rare than I bet a lot of us expected. John himself doesn't really give us any clues as to who or what an Antichrist is. He seems to suggest that they've left the church, that they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, suggesting that once upon a time they were in the church, but they've apparently left it. They were never kicked out. Rather, they left on their own volition. They left the communion of saints. John will say, for if they really belonged to us, they would have remained, but their going, their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So it indicates that they were fake all along, or otherwise they would have stayed. One wonders if they really were Christians at all in the first place. I'll let you be the judge. But now they are acting like our doppelgangers. They're acting as our opposites because they're frauds, because they claim to be us, but they're not a part of us, according to John, because John says they're liars. John says, here's another clue, John says they cannot be a Christian because they deny core tenets of the Christian faith. They deny core beliefs about God that Christians are supposed to hold. Things like Jesus is the Christ, or that Jesus is God's Son, or that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh from God. These are not secondary doctrines or opinions to John. These are the core dogmas, and so it's important for Christians to believe this, and since they don't, they're not one of us. But the final clue John gives us is that their beliefs, they spill over into anti-Christian behavior and anti-Christian lifestyle because they're making decisions and choices based off their theology. If you've ever heard the word orthodoxy, all that simply means is right beliefs. Orthodoxy is right beliefs. But it's paired often with this word orthopraxy, which means right practices or right actions. You need both of them. And if you read through John's letter, he contrasts not only having a right theology, but also having a right 
action because you could have wrong behaviors. And this is leading some scholars to wonder if he's really talking about these antichrists throughout his letter. And for instance, he says that they're living in spiritual darkness and are not living in the truth. That's what he says. And people like that, he characterizes are those that they say they have no sin or have never sinned. They make a habit of sinning. Or they're continuing to sin without confessing. They hate their fellow brother and sister. They do not love one another. He says, if anyone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. They claim to know God, but do not do the right things. They're not obeying what God says to do. They love the world and the things of this world. They crave physical pleasures and not the affection of the Father. The world doesn't hate them like it does us. Again, are all these different clues that John is trying to reveal to us are the Antichrists. But that hasn't stopped scholars from debating on looking outside John's letter for some more clues or some more appearances of these so-called antichrists, and I'm sure you've heard of some of them. Could John's mention of antichrists be related to Jesus' general warning about the future coming of false Christs and false prophets who will deceive many, including even people in the church? Jesus said these teachers will appear and they'll preach Untruth. They'll be people that perhaps disguise themselves as Messiah-like figures or perhaps pretending to be Jesus himself. Jesus says they will appear, they'll be very effective, and the church ought to be on guard. That could be a possibility of what John's talking to. Though admittedly they only appear in Matthew and Mark and not John's gospel, but maybe this is John's way of talking about the same thing. The other option is likely the one you're most familiar with, and let's just say it's gotten a lot of press over the years, making it a bit more popular. You know the what I'm talking about. It's the one that people go to when they want to demonize a politician that they don't like, or it's the one Hollywood always will use as the major villain in their motion picture about the end times. It's this expectation of this particular arch opponent of Christ, the capital the capital A Antichrist, one final opponent against God. You've heard of this one before because in apocalyptic thought, it was prophesied that there was going to be this supremely evil antagonist in the last days. And if we're living in the last days, according to John, this could be who that is. John references that he's coming. Many people think this is the same one. Again, this is what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, this man of lawlessness, or perhaps better translated, the rebel, the one that will sit on the temple of God and claiming himself to be God and usher in an age of unprecedented rebellion against God. Or maybe some people would say this is the same one as the beast or the false prophet in Revelation 13, who's given authority by the dragon. Go read Revelation yourself. You'll see it for yourself. And he'll do astonishing miracles and be worshiped by the masses and deceive many. And this is the part everyone knows. And they'll require to wear a mark, which is 666. I'm not saying that they're right. I'm just saying this is the train of thought that they get to because I guarantee when you hear the word antichrist, you think of that second option because that's what the media and pop culture has conditioned you to, to think. All right, I'm talking really fast. I'm going to slow down a little bit. I'm just trying to get it all out of the way for you here. Does John mean the same thing as Matthew and Mark where Jesus talks about these false prophets and false messiahs? And if that's the case then hundreds, if not thousands, of false teachers throughout Christian history could be considered antichrists. They had the wrong orthodoxy. They often resulted in the wrong orthopraxy. 
and that resulted in them leaving the church or a lot of times getting kicked out of the church. And depending where you are in church history, there's a lot of different antichrists. If you lived in the 4th century, there was this guy named Arius that was deemed an antichrist. If you lived in the 16th century, Martin Luther considered the Pope to be the antichrist. Or maybe perhaps nowadays we'd call a so-called prophet named Joseph Smith the Antichrist for leading astray a bunch of Latter-day Saints. If that's the option, maybe the other option's true. Does John mean this malevolent, tyrannical ruler who clearly opposes Christ and takes a page out of Walt Disney's Sleeping Beauty and is really this evil queen that's really a dragon? Oh, come on, a lot of you think this way. This individual will appear and he'll rise to power conveniently in the political party we didn't vote for. And he'll cause massive widespread chaos and destruction. He'll destroy America because the people who wrote the left-behind books told you, not scripture, but the left-behind books told you that's what he's going to do. <laughs> I told you we're going to get dangerous today. Now, if you think I'm being a little too cavalier and dismissive of the Antichrist, it's because I am. I'll just lay my cards on the table. Because at the end of the day, I'm fine with telling you I don't know who or what the Antichrist is. I'm comfortable living in the tension and the mystery of not knowing for two reasons. Number one, the Bible doesn't seem to care. If Scripture really wanted us to know the identity of the individual, Scripture would have been more clear. And in my humble opinion, conversations around the Antichrist inevitably wind up like a wild goose chase this partisan game of eeny, meeny, miny, moe, of people not in our tribe that we have a bone to pick with. And this term becomes a marketing tool, if not a weapon used by politicians and authors and even some preachers sometimes to scare us about the future, to pressure us into changing our opinions about people we disagree with or even sway who we vote for. But I want to tell you this, while the Bible isn't clear on the identity of the Antichrist, Scripture is very clear on one other thing, how the Antichrist story is going to end. Doomed to destruction, Paul said to the Thessalonians. The man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. We're told in Revelation 19 of this rider on a white horse whose name is Faithful and True, and his eyes were like the flames of fire, and his head had many crowns, and a name was written on him that no one understood except himself, and he wore a robe dripped in blood, and his title was the Word of God, and on his robe, on his thigh, was written King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and you know what he does? He rages war against that dragon and that beast, and he wins. That the beast will be captured, and with that false prophet, he will be thrown into what they call the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and for you Bible nerds out here, that's not hell, that's what hell is going to be thrown into. <laughs> For some reason, friends, this ending gets lost in the shuffle because we're more concerned on who the Antichrist is. But I'm here to tell you, why do Christians get so mesmerized and take a big fuss over this when the Bible doesn't seem to care, when the Bible has better news for you, the Bible's very clear on how everything's going to end. Because one day, everybody will see the Son of Man coming with great power, Jesus said, and he will send his angels to all the corners of the world, and he will gather everyone together, and the Paul says, we'll rise up together in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and this is the beautiful crescendo, then we will be with 
the Lord forever. That's the good news. That's what the Bible is consistent on, that God wins and that we'll be with God forever, that the evil one and his minions do not get the predominant or even the final word in the Bible, despite what folks will tell you. God does, we do. And I guess I just don't really care about the Antichrist because I care about my king. All right, I'll get off my soapbox. Back to 1 John. My second reason, while I don't think the Bible is obsessed with finding the identity of the Antichrist, I don't think John is either. You're welcome to disagree with me, but I don't think unmasking the Antichrist like the end of an episode of Scooby-Doo is John's intent for us this morning. I don't think the devil is somewhere going, man, I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for those meddling Christians and their dumb dog. I think John's got a different goal for us this morning, and this is where probably the sermon will begin. That John is trying to tell us this morning, and I think it can be summed in one don't and one do. One don't and one do. Don't be deceived and do remain. Don't be deceived. If I may, I think John does seem to suggest that there is this ultimate, what we can say, uppercase, capital A, Antichrist that is coming. The Antichrist, if you will. Who is that? John doesn't, doesn't matter to John. He doesn't point the finger at Caesar or some government official. He doesn't name a specific individual who has left the church or is currently persecuting his people. I'm inclined to believe that perhaps the devil himself is the Antichrist, and perhaps who wouldn't be a bigger Antichrist than the devil himself? But if John knows, he isn't telling. But rather, instead of idle speculation about the Antichrist, instead of looking for the Antichrist, John is looking for the evidence of what is known as the spirit of the Antichrist. You've heard it's coming, and even now it's already in the world. This seems to be John's biggest concern, that the spirit of opposition to Christ is already present around us, that it's manifesting itself presently in human agents and systems, not only in John's time, but we can see out through the entire church's existence, and it's even here now. John says, even now many antichrists have come. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Any such person is a deceiver and the antichrist, so watch out. I'm writing these things to you about those who are presently trying to lead you astray. And I wonder if John would say the same thing if he was here this morning. John is not trying to formulate a conspiracy theory surrounding this antichrist. But he's not denying that he's coming one day. Rather, he's more concerned that the present reality of false teachers in the church who had the spirit of the Antichrist, and he's saying, don't be deceived. That's what John's worried about, that there are people operating in this world with the mindset of the Antichrist. They aren't the Antichrist. Rather, they are possessed by the same spirit that will possess him. They're in league with him, even if they aren't him or will never see him. And they're persuading and they're wooing true Christians to their side. Friends, I think this is something for us to notice. Because what if, and this is my own speculation, you're welcome to disagree, but what if the spirit of the Antichrist, he operates similarly to the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ Jesus And because he's not very original, because he wants to leech off of God's success, he doesn't adopt a new strategy. He corrupts God's. He takes God's very good plan of indwelling people with his spirit, of animating them, of giving them new life, of setting them free. But instead, the spirit of the Antichrist indwells people, it possesses people, and it enslaves and corrupts their souls. 
that through persuasion and not coercion over time, that through this slow, steady, not growth but corruption, the spirit of the Antichrist is trying to find inroads into the hearts of God's people, and that's why we have to be on guard, friends. Because what if, just like with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the Antichrist has fruit? That whereas the fruit of the Spirit in a person is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What if the Spirit, if the fruit of the Spirit of the Antichrist would be the opposite of those things? That it's hatred. That it's fear. That it's chaos. It's this insufferability. That it's evil. That it's disloyalty. That it's dishonesty. It's cruelty. Undisciplined. Maybe there's others. John has alluded to these characteristics and then some. But are these characteristics of people that we see out into this world that are claiming to be Christians, that are claiming to be part of us, but are they perhaps not the Antichrist, but they're living in the spirit of the Antichrist, and they're trying to woo and persuade us to their side? Perhaps in our fascination with the end times, we forget that the spirit of the Antichrist is around us in this world. Maybe that should just alarm us a little bit. I'm not trying to scare us, friends. I'm just trying to make us alert that maybe John is suggesting that the Antichrist is in our culture, that it's this mindset, it's this system, it's this way of living, it's this matrix for viewing life, and is wanting to persuade us to think that's the true Christian life when that's not. And while the capital A Antichrist is not here, these small A Antichrists are around us, and they're embodying this ethic that they want us to persuade us is the true thing. Because I think before you envision this cosmic, demonic supervillain that's looking to take over the world, what if the ethos of the Antichrist may not be as maniacal as you think? That it may be quieter, it may be softer and more subtle and more discreet. What author Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins. Sins we consciously or subconsciously overlook and tolerate. Sins of judgmentalism, of envy, of gossip, of slander, of lying, anger, division. These are just a few things. Perhaps the slow and steady wins the race is the mentality. That'd be my strategy if I were the devil. Sure, it pops up very obviously in some people, and even some people today, but what if the enemy is in this for the long haul, and he's approaching this as a marathon and not a sprint, and that each generation he just ratchets things up slowly because Christians have no longer cared? What if not being deceived is being aware? Being aware of the spirit of Antichrist that exists in pockets in our culture, in the media that we consumed, in the people that we sometimes associate with, in the habits that we adopted. Maybe you're seeing it around you. What if we need to pause and assess, friends, who is discipling us? Is it the Holy Spirit? Or is it the spirit of this age? Test the spirits, John says. Do not believe every spirit that you come across, but examine it, scrutinize it, like you're looking for the quality of a precious metal. See whether that spirit is from God or not. John's pretty confident we'll know the difference. If it's the spirit of God, it will point you to Christ. It is the word made flesh, the one sent from the Father, the one who's doing the Father's will. If it points you anywhere else, it's not a trustworthy spirit. Don't be deceived, friends. What is discipling you? My last point. Do remain. 
Don't be deceived. Do remain. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, John says, and all you know the truth. Do not write, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. See that you have heard from the beginning remains in you. And if it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised to us, eternal life. John's actually doing a little bit of play on words here. But to see it, I need to refresh you on what Christos, Christ, or the Greek word for the Hebrew word, Mashah, or Messiah, means. Messiah in the Old Testament, does anyone know what it means? Messiah means? Anyone know? Anointed one. And it was common in the Old Testament for kings and judges and prophets and priests to be lowercase messiahs because they were anointed by God for their task. Jesus is the capital M Messiah because he's the Messiah, while the rest of us are lowercase messiahs. So if we take that definition and take it into the word antichrist, which is Greek, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright suggests that we think of it as anti-messiahs, anti-anointed ones. So this means that John is warning us about a group of people, these anti-anointed ones, who are doing the opposite of what true anointed ones are supposed to do. So John is telling us, live as anointed ones, as messiahed people. That's how John N.T. Wright says it. Live as Christ's anointed ones. One's anointed, John says, by the Holy Spirit that Jesus in John's gospel breathed on us. The same spirit that animated us in the garden is now animating us in the light of Easter. When God breathed down on us after he formed us out of the dust of the earth and brave us new life, that same spirit is now making us new creations and new creatures. It's anointed us. It's sanctifying us. It is an advocate, Jesus said. And it's the one who is the spirit truth that will lead us into all truth. The one who was sent by the Father in Jesus' name, Jesus said, will teach us everything and remind us everything that Jesus told us. So perhaps in contrast to these anti-anointed ones who are possessed by the spirit of the Antichrist, what would it look like for us, the church, the truly anointed ones, to remain, to abide, to be at home and to dwell in the animating anointing of the Spirit that's breathed out and poured out on us by the Son that facilitates this intimacy and life with our Heavenly Father. What would that look like for you? I find myself rereading C.S. Lewis's novel, The Screwtape Letters. It was published in this weekly uh, newspaper in 1941, but republished as a book in 1942. And the book contains these 31 letters written from this experienced demon named Screwtape to his young nephew and protege, Wormwood. And each letter are these words of wisdom, so to speak, on effective strategies for tempting human beings. The whole book is this satire, and so Lewis is utilizing these two demon personas to converse back and forth to talk about spiritual warfare from the other side. It's really this really fascinating thing. And so with that, you have to read the entire book in reverse, or backwards, if you will. Everything is inverted. And there's this really interesting line that Lewis has that uh, Screwtape is telling Wormwood, and i just like to read it for you. It captivated me, and I've been chewing on it. Screwtape says, It's funny how mortals always picture us putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. 
It's funny how mortals always picture us putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. What if the enemy is doing all it can to keep you from abiding in Christ, to keep Christ out, from intaking different means of grace that would allow you to tabernacle in Christ's presence, from dwelling in the Word, whether that's devotional readings, whether that's showing up on Sunday mornings, hearing sermons, meditating, however you do it. What if the enemy wants you to not participate in absorbing the texts of Scripture, the Word of God, breathed out by the Spirit, because it fears that if it gets in you, it'll change you? What if this enemy is trying to prevent you from gathering with other spirit-filled people? Again, whether that's on Sunday mornings, whether that's in our Bible study, whether that's on Wednesday night, or whether that's going to lunch after I'm done. The enemy wants you to stress about your hectic schedule, the things that are in your lives, the things that are not necessarily bad, but it wants you to compromise and says, I don't want you to be with spirit-filled people because it knows that in that fellowship, in that goodness, if that gets in you, the enemy knows it's lost you. What are things in your life that the enemy is trying to keep out? Because it knows that if you dwell in Christ's presence, it'll get in you and it'll change you. All right. Scholar, scholar Rodney Reeves, he asks, how do we battle for truth? His answer is one word, and he says it's incarnation. He says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And according to John, the same should be true of us. We should not only say the right words about Jesus, but we must embody the words of Jesus. As John says, whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God has been perfect in him. This is how we know we are in him, that the one who says he abides in him ought to also walk just as Jesus walked. Reeves says that's how we fight this war, that we live what we say is true. If I can be so bold in my humble opinion, I think the greatest threat to the church is not missing the Antichrist. It's inadvertently manifesting and incarnating the spirit of the Antichrist as we're looking for him. That we'll live like those anti-anointed ones or we'll respond to the things in this world like anti-anointed ones or we'll treat each other like those anti-anointed ones instead of incarnating the word that became flesh and dwelled among us. Friends, as John says, the hour is indeed late. We are on the downward curve of history. We're heading towards the end where God will make all things new. And this may be frightening to some of us, but I don't want you to be frightened. I don't want you to lose heart because perhaps, as Darkwing says, let's get dangerous. Let's never tire of doing good, friends. Let's embody what it means to be Messiah people. Let's not lean in and mimic the spirit of this age. Let's remain in Christ and know that he will remain in us. And if we do, we'll produce good fruit, fruit produced from that same spirit. Friends, if I can be so bold, let's get dangerous.